Please hold for Armchair Adventurer. That's not the kind of podcast we are. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. Oh, beautiful. Welcome home. Good to be back, boys. Yes, you've heard that correctly. Paul is back. He missed. Can't even tell you how many episodes. It's been like four or five weeks. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a while. He decided to skip back in for the final part of the Magnate series. Thank Arguably you for the most uh, interesting of all the magnates we'll be talking about. Oh, I hope that's true. The other ones were kind of a snooze fest. <laughs> well, Ooh. I mean, the story is all just... He got a lot of money. Yep. <clears throat> More money than he should have. That's but, the end uh, of the story. That's, that's the moral. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we no, got the... J.P. Morgan today. I knew pretty much nothing about him besides the his name being attached to Chase Bank. Uh, now after the year 2000 sure so i'm hoping you guys can tell me a little bit more cool well um i'll be talking about the early life and career of mr john pierpont morgan well greg Um, is there could you give us maybe like um how what did this guy do uh well basically so one of the most uh notable things here as far as how J.P. Morgan relates to the rest of our magnates we've talked about is um, he's one of the earliest ones we've talked about um, timing wise. Like uh, he, you know, he was born a lot earlier than many of the the other people we've talked about other than um, Carnegie. Carnegie was a earlier one as well. Um, And they do intersect later on, which we'll talk about. But uh, J.P. Morgan unlike a lot of the others, started out in a particularly wealthy family, uh, wealthy and influential family, and uh, only used that to build upon his wealth over time. But what did he do, Greg? Really was just like... <laughs> YouTube a, influencer. A, a, <laughs> what did he do here? I mean, yeah. seriously, the 1800s equivalent of a YouTube influencer, maybe. You know, he was a man who knew how to make connections between things and uh, you know, make businesses more efficient. Dan spilled his drink on himself. <laughs> no, I, that was my reaction to Greg comparing him to a YouTube influencer. <laughs> I mean, he's going with it. I it was the equivalent is... of spilling an alcoholic drink into my lap. <laughs> well, okay, I wouldn't really compare him to that, but I'd compare uh, him more uh, to... Uh, please, Dan, what did J.P. Morgan do? You want me to take this? <laughs> Sorry, Greg. No, I'm just kidding. He was Greg, a banker. He was just a yeah. banker. That's it. He yeah. he financed a financier is probably the best word to use. Yes. The thing about That's the 19th, 19th century <laughs> is that bankers and financiers were like one in the same. They're not yeah. as separate as they are today. He, okay. Yes. He's a banker, but like businessman. Uh, he, the guy who owns the bank. That's a good description. I like it. The man who never ran out of money. You know, he, he managed the money of basically the world <laughs> yeah accurate yeah. all right greg i'm sorry i've bullied you enough you can go ahead and <laughs> start <Greg>. section. <laughs> you know frankly uh i deserve it so yep if you all say right. so <laughs> well frankly i i mean at least in the in the context of this episode um 
my notes will slowly fall apart as we go. I'm very prepared <laughs> in the beginning, but it's just going to slowly fall apart. So get ready for that. Just turns so. into pinging at the end or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite that bad. But so we start our story with the birth of John Pierpont Morgan on uh, April the 17th of 1837. Um, as I mentioned before, unlike many of the other business magnates we've talked about, Pierpont was born into relative wealth uh, in the town of Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, city, I suppose, not town. Um, it's the capital. It is. Uh, Pierpont's father was Junius Spencer Morgan, and that's not Julius, it's Junius uh, with an N. Uh, he was a successful business di- bleh, businessman in his own right. I hate that I just did that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, like, I should have just it's shut in his up. Notes. That's the better way to do it. No, yeah. it's actually in his notes. Yeah, in my notes it says Blurg. make a bleh sound. Yeah. Yeah. Make it a total ass of yourself. Later on it says start speaking Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk about Portuguese shortly. So what? Um I'm not joking. Um so The Azores. Yep. That's getting ahead of yourself there. Sorry. But yes. So Junius Spencer Morgan was a, <laughs> not the first time, uh, a successful businessman in his own right. Uh, his father founded um, J.S. Morgan and Company, which was a joint venture between himself and a man by the name of George Peabody. Peabody was an early American financier, as well as being known as the father of modern philanthropy. I believe that Peabody was actually an Englishman and largely did his business in London but also did a lot of his business in uh, New England as well, much like uh, Morgan. Um, Morgan's grandfather, Joseph Morgan, uh, was one of the founders of Connecticut's uh, Aetna Insurance Company. Um, Aetna still exists today and, in fact, was purchased by uh, CVS Health Corporation in 2017 for, get this, 69 billion dollars wow yeah that's a big so, number at yeah, that and that's, time too no 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 that's that was in 2017 oh yeah so like so yes at that time <laughs> yes at, at that time yes yes uh <clears throat> but that was like interestingly that was like pretty much completely divorced from jp morgan like it was his grandfather's business that he helped found but um like john pierpont morgan's father that genius guy was never really involved with that. And so he kind of stayed away from that. Just independently, that family business, you know, went on and stayed an insurance company all the way through 2017 and eventually made its way up to $69 billion, which is pretty crazy. But, uh, anyway, um, Pierpont's mother, uh, Juliet Pierpont, uh, was the daughter of the famous poet John Pierpont, who is most widely known for his poem, The Heirs of Palestine. Um, i kidding. If you haven't noticed, I've been calling him Pierpont at least a couple times here. Um, I haven't mentioned this yet, but basically, as a child, uh, J.P. Morgan uh, decided that he most preferred to go by the name Pierpont. Um, like a, as his given name? Correct. Like as yes, as his like first name. Sure. Uh, I think that's largely due to the fact that um, sounds cool. Like his like, <laughs> sounds I mean, fancy yeah. at least. Yeah. Well, think about it this way: his his maternal grandfather was named John Pierpont. Like, mm. I mean, it's just weird to go by you know 
Just two Johns, think. yep. Yeah, mm, yeah. I think he just wanted to go by Pierpont because. Which is funny because you know what did he name his son? I assume John Pierpont. <laughs> also John Pierpont. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> You'll go back to John, Sonny. Yeah, yeah. John's all the way down. That I mean, that makes Mat- it's not Mat- something that occurred to me, but it makes me think now. Did people call him JP, or was that just like maybe his <laughs> signature, or like you know what he wrote on documents I, or something? I was gonna say I think it has that has more to do with the company. Oh, like the hmm. name of the company. Yeah. What did do? Because there's no way like. Contemporaries of C.S. Lewis called him C.S. Right? Probably not. Call him like Charles or whatever the hell that sounds like. Yeah, it's yeah. a good point. Yeah, probably a modern invention. But anyway, better than the whole Charles Schwab situation. Yeah, because that just doesn't make any sense. The two different Charles Schwabs. But anywho, somebody should have been just called one of them C. Schwab. Chucky uh, Shoe. D- oh. <laughs> So anyway, um, as far as his childhood goes, uh, Pierpont was uh, a very sickly child. He was uh, prone to fevers, coughs, and seizures. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that kind of affected him a little bit when he was very young, but didn't really start to seriously affect and, uh, affect him until he was like you know, 11 or 12 years old or so. Uh, so at age 11, he enrolled at a school that would later become Connecticut's famous Cheshire Academy. Um, and then three years later, he aced the entrance exam for Boston's English High School, which was a school specifically catered towards youths who were mathematically talented and interested in a career in business and finance. That just um, meant for kids who were rich. Pretty much, yeah, <laughs> which is exactly what... Uh, you know, charter school or uh, not charter schools, but uh, like the prep Cheshire. schools are today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like Northeastern prep schools. Uh, so Pierpont enrolled in 1851 uh, at that Boston at Boston's English High School at the age of 14. Uh, this schooling was intended to set him up as an heir to the family business. But unfortunately, uh, Pierpont quickly became very ill with rheumatic fever uh, within the first year of attending there which is basically a complication of like uh, like a prolonged lung infection, which explains his whole you know, cough and whatnot. So uh, Pierpont was then sent by his father to the Portuguese Azor Islands, which Kane had mentioned before. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar with the Azores, definitely go take a look at some of the pictures of that place. It is gorgeous. I, yeah. I love the Azores. I really want to go there someday. It's like one of the only chains of islands that's like legitimately in the middle of the North Atlantic, like probably a third of the way between Europe and North America. Damn. But it seems like tropical there. Like it's not like Ireland, North Atlantic. It's like, (laughs) you know, it's like Mediterranean, North Atlantic. Yeah. Which is so bizarre because it's like the, uh, the longitude of it is pretty similar to like Philadelphia. Is it, uh, aren't there some like really constant warm winds that I think that's the main go across why the like Atlantic? That, yeah. mm-hmm. I think that's largely the reason why it's so warm there, but it's super cool. They got volcanoes, uh, really oh, low yeah, population. That's great. Yeah. Pop one of those in my backyard. <laughs> Volcano? <laughs> I know what you mean. Well, yeah, no, it's just very, a very cool place. This, I, this place looks fantastic. It oh, does. you're just looking it at really these oars? Oh. Uh, yeah. It's gorgeous. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're autonomous from Portugal, I believe, too. 
At this point, yes, I believe so. But at the time, they were Portuguese territory. So anyway, um, his father sent him there, uh, thinking that the salty air would help his sickness, which is a very 1800s way of thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Atlantic City, New Jersey would have worked just fine. <laughs> yeah, or you could have, you know... Just yeah, for poor people, Dan. Done so- <laughs> Jeez. Not for a man of wealth. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... Yeah, so, um, actually, like, it may not have been the salty air, but within a year, uh, Pierpont was actually, uh, quite healthy. Um, his, he was healthy enough to return to the United States, and he finished his high school education, you know, without a hitch. Uh, so after that, uh, Pierpont continued his education, um, at a school called Bellarive, which was a college in the Swiss town of La Tour de Pelise, or... Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that completely correctly, but tour. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna try too much. I even si. know French, and this is Bonjour. <laughs> uh, but basically, it's it's a town on the northeastern coast of Lake Geneva. So, um, beautiful, picturesque place. And uh, at that school, uh, Morgan learned to speak French, which was a skill that his father basically uh, believed to be of like the utmost importance uh, for the heir of his family business. Because at it, the time, yeah. um, French was like an international language that like lots of countries used, much more so than today. <laughs> so uh, next, um, Pierpont studied at the University of uh, Göttingen in Germany. <laughs> University um, of Gottingen, Jim. Ha ha! To all the Jims out there, we're talking to you. <laughs> So he he picked up his third new language within a year because he had learned some Portuguese when he was in the Azores, learned French in uh, that Swiss town, and now is learning German. So uh, one of the interesting things here is that um, while in Germany, um, he was there studying uh, to get an art history degree, uh, which really isn't a surprise considering uh, his lifelong love of the arts. Mm-hmm. Apparently, at, like at a young age... Um, yeah, uh, you know, he was kind of constantly exposed to the arts by his parents and family. And uh, unlike many kids, when you try and like, you know, take him to an art museum or whatever, you know, instead of loathing it, he just soaked it up nonstop. He was like a. His entire life, he absolutely loved the arts, so. That really but that really picked up when he was in Germany, and uh, that's why he ended up getting that art history degree. So moving on to his early career, um. Morgan started his career in 1857 at the London branch of Morgan Peabody and Company. Uh, so as we mentioned before, um, his father worked with uh, George Peabody, and that um, that Morgan Peabody and Company is, is the company that they had together. Um, I know that they at least had a London and uh, New York branch. I think they had one in like Boston or something like that too, but he started out in London as they kind of needed, you know, they needed somebody there. So he worked in London for about a year, after which he returned to New England. Um, and uh, instead of returning to Connecticut, where his family was really from, uh, Junius Morgan uh, trusted his son as, um, like, more so than any of his other children, and uh, decided to set him up with a job as a clerk at Duncan Sherman & Company, which is a tangentially related company to um, the Morgan and Peabody company and got him a job as a clerk. 
uh, in New York City. So, um, Pierpont had only been in New York for about a year before he ended up falling in love in 1859 with a woman by the name of Amelia Sturgis, uh, who he met through the New York art scene. And uh, she went by the nickname Mimi. So, Mimi, Mimi, Mimi. Mimi, 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 Mimi. Really expecting that out of Kane first. I'd... Sorry. <laughs> That's good. So, um, Paul, you said you, uh, you're you going to touch on this a little bit more later. Um, did you only passingly touch on, on Mimi, or, or should I go into more detail here? Um, no, I only kind of just mentioned her. Um, if you want to con- kind of give the details about how he affected him. Okay. So, um, mind you, like, this is like, Morgan's like, was 1859, so he's only like 22 years old when he meets this woman. And uh, so he quickly, like, her family was about to go on a, like, a European vacation. And so he spent, like, I think it was like four weeks touring Europe with Mimi and her family. Um, and uh, so he goes on this this crazy vacation with them. And uh, reportedly, this is the happiest that uh, Morgan had ever been in his entire life. But uh, unfortunately, soon after returning, uh, Mimi came down with some sort of mysterious cough. Uh, And also, this was around the same time that the U.S. Civil War was on the uh, brink of outbreak. Mm. Um, Many many men in the North would be worried about this, fearing military service and potentially dying. Uh, But much like many other wealthy men of his time, Morgan was able to pay $300 to send a substitute to fight in his stead. So <laughs> three hundred bucks. Like, what was that at th- the time, though? Like a couple grand. Um, I didn't look that up. So, um, probably yeah, like probably. less less than ten thousand dollars, which to yeah. me is a small price for not dying. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Morgan and Mimi married in October of eighteen sixty one. Honeymooning in get this, the Azores. <laughs> oh my god. Um. Well, granted, oh, you got to realize cough. that, yeah, she had she had the cough. Um, and so, um, you know, he kind of thought that moving to somewhere with some salty air would be a good call. So they honeymooned the Azores. And uh, next, they actually moved to Algeria, of all places, hmm. uh, hoping that the mild Mediterranean climate would kind of help her lung condition. But uh, unfortunately, after a visit to France, they realized that cause of this <laughs> cough was actually a disease. And that disease was tuberculosis which did not spare many people in the 1860s to say the least and uh mimi was no exception so she died in february of 1862 after they were only married for about four months which left uh morgan as a widower at the age of what 20 uh 25 yeah they have any kids they did no. not. Mm. No, they did not have enough time. Um, so, yeah, unfortunate. Very early widower there. Uh, he will remarry later, which uh, Paul will talk about, but uh, I'll leave that there. So, um, does anybody else cover the Hall Carbine affair? Ooh. No. <clears throat> okay. Uh, there's actually a lot of detail of this whole thing, but I'm just going to briefly cover it. So, during the, during the Civil War... Um, Morgan was uh, involved in a um, 
a bit of a um, debacle known as the Hall Carbine Affair, where he financed the purchase of 5,000 rifles from an army arsenal at $3.50 apiece, which were then resold to a field general at $22 apiece. But uh, basically, the rifles were kind of defective and weren't suitable for the kind of ammunition they were supposed to be using. And it was one of his earliest ventures where he garnered serious, like, negative public attention mm. from what had happened. Because he was basically, he made this massive profit on these rifles and... They sucked. Well, they were potentially defective to the point where people could have died from using them. Just blow up in your face. Uh, less, less much that, more, more like... When he sold them, he was claiming they were a certain caliber, and the caliber was actually higher than they were which means that the bullets they were using were too small, which means they were wildly inaccurate and, mm. like, just... Really, this is just a ineffective. man ahead of his time. I mean, if he had lived in, like, you know, 2020, he'd be upselling to the military all the time. <laughs> no problem. Well, if they tested even one of them, they would have figured out how terrible Well, yeah, besides the and defect he'd go part. But... go straight to jail. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he would. <laughs> like, uh... There weren't a whole lot of laws it? in this at the time. War Dogs? You remember that movie? with? Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. After, uh, well, this is partially during the Civil War, but from 1860 to 1864, Pierpont acted as an agent uh, in New York for um, his father's firm, which uh, was later renamed J.S. Morgan & Company, which we'll talk about. Um, he, uh, he acted as an agent... Um, after Peabody's retirement in 1864. Um, So from 1864 to 1872, uh, Pierpont was a member of the firm Dabney, Morgan & Company. And then in 1871, he partnered with the Drexels of Philadelphia to form the New York firm of Drexel, Morgan & Company. They have a university. They do, (laughs) yes. One that Sam Hyde did a... TEDx talk at (laughs) Drexel University. It's the only reason I know Drexel University. (laughs) But that was the 2020 paradigm shift. Very good. But uh, anyway, um, at the time of the formation of Drexel Morgan and Company, um, Anthony J. Drexel became Pierpont's mentor at the request of Junius Morgan. Which... uh, Drexel was like a pretty influential financier of his own. And uh, I mean, I know he has a university named after him, but uh, my understanding is just kind of a big figure in Philadelphia history, like at least in the 1800s. So after the death of Anthony Drexel, uh, the firm was rechristened J.P. Morgan and Company in 1895, and they retained close ties with uh, Drexel and Company of Philadelphia, uh, Morgan, Hargess and Company of Paris, and J.S. Morgan & Company of London. By 1900, uh, J.P. Morgan & Company was one of the world's most powerful banking houses focused primarily on reorganizations and consolidations, which I think you'll find as a, as a theme throughout the rest of uh, J.P. Morgan's life. Um, he wasn't the kind of guy who really... He didn't start massive businesses, but he was very big in the how can we take this company and make it the most efficient as possible and consolidate with other companies and just kind of vertically integrate all these companies to make the most powerful, efficient apparatus possible. Um, 
So Morgan had many partners over the years, such as George W. Perkins. Uh, but he he was the type of man who always wanted to remain firmly in charge of his companies. He was not the delegating type. That's for sure. Um, so um, one of the things that Morgan often did was um, taking over businesses that had some sort of inefficiency, some sort of trouble to them, uh, and reorganizing their structure and changing up management uh, to get them into profitability. So by basically buying unprofitable businesses, making sweeping changes in order to make them profitable. And uh, that process eventually became known as Morganization, which is pretty crazy yeah. that he did it so much that they, they named it after him. Um, Morgan's reputation as a banker and financier, um, like really drew interest from investors to the businesses that he took over. So he was just one of those people that was like so massively influential that just the fact that he was getting involved with the business drew investors to want to invest in that kind of business. So, um, my next section of notes is labeled three prongs. Does anybody, has anybody heard that in reference to Morgan? No. Nope. Okay. So many people have described Morgan as having a three-pronged business empire. Uh, those three prongs are as follows, and that is railroads, steel, and banking. So as we've talked about already, uh, the banking section of his business was largely uh, made up of J.P. Morgan and Company, um, which, uh, interestingly, is that company, J.P. Morgan and Company, was the predecessor of three of the largest banking institutions in the world today. Um, other than J.P. Morgan Chase, what do you guys think of the other two? Do you know? Banking? Um, City? Is that Wells Fargo? Nope. And Deutsche nope. Bank. Deutsche Bank is one of them. Anybody have the last one? It's Morgan Stanley. Oh, sure. Damn. Okay. Yeah, so um, those three all came out of uh, J.P. Morgan and Company. God. Um. Uh, the company is often referred to just as the House of Morgan. Which I really <laughs> cool. Wow. Very, uh, very ominous, very ominous sounding. Yeah, super yeah. like Game of Thronesy. Oh, super, yeah. yeah. They have a um, crest and everything. So uh, the bank was and is still incredibly successful. Um, and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase themselves um, in 2010 employed over 26,000 people. Damn. Very large, very large company. So uh, moving on to the railroad section, um, in Morgan's ascent to power, um, he largely focused on railroads, which at the time were America's largest business enterprise. Um, so Morgan managed to wrestle control of the Albany and Susquehanna Railroad from Jay Gould and Jim Fisk in 1869. Uh, Morgan also led the syndicate that broke the government financing privileges of Jay Cook. Um, I don't know much about any of those men, um, but uh, I know those are significant names in American history. I, I wish I knew more about them, or I wish I had enough time to research them, but um, notable things to mention regardless. So um, Morgan also developed and financed a railroad empire, or his railroad empire, excuse me, by uh, the same thing as most of his other businesses, by reorganization and consolidation which he did in all parts of the United States. He also raised large sums of investment money in Europe, but rather than participating uh, solely as a financier for railroads, he also helped the railroads reorganize and 
achieve greater efficiency there. Um, so uh, he successfully marketed a large part of uh, William H. Vanderbilt's New York Central Holdings, or New York Central Railroad Holdings That's in 1883. Vanderbilt's kid, right? That is correct. Uh, one of his only not shipper. Yeah, kids. that was <laughs> that was like <laughs> 20 minutes of that episode. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, Morgan also uh, reorganized the New York West Shore and Buffalo Railroad in 1885 which he uh, eventually leased to the New York Central. And then in 1886, he reorganized the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad. Uh, and then in 1888, the Chesapeake and Ohio. So this is kind of a, a major thing that he did, was just like the reorganization and consolidation of railroads. It was a, you know, a big part of his business. So after Congress passed the Interstate Commerce Act in 1887, um, Morgan set up conferences in 1889 and 1890 that uh, kind of brought together presidents of all the railroads in the, in the United States uh, in order to help the industry follow the new uh, new laws and uh, write agreements for the maintenance of, quote-unquote, public, reasonable, uniform, and stable rates. Um, I do remember so, seeing that, and that struck me so, like, I'm sure he made money on all of these deals, but... This whole like sweeping consolidation of a bunch of railroads does sound like a little bit of public service. But again, I'm hesitant to say that because I'm sure he made a ton of money. He did make a ton of money. But um, like it did seem to like benefit the general public. What I can say is that as far as the. Well, for lack of a better term, robber barons of the time go. Uh, Morgan wasn't particularly cutthroat or, again, for lack of a better term, an asshole. Mm. He seemed to be doing it out of genuine business interest, like just very practical. He, he wasn't like... It, it didn't seem to me throughout reading this that he was as maniacally focused on being rich as many of the other business magnates of the time. I think that partially comes from the fact that he came from money. So he didn't have this like obsession with moving up mm. like a lot of the poorer business magnates, I think kind of, you know, had Vanderbilt in particular. Um, but yeah, no, he seems, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but he's very, I think the word, the word that best describes Morgan is paternalistic. Hmm. Just very, I know, I know best, and my way is right, but not in a, how should I say, not in a, you know, ignorant way or anything like that. Like, a, like a, he genuinely did know very well, and um, his decisions ended up largely benefiting a lot of people, but... Um, just like many of the other business magnates at the time, he wasn't super fond of uh, unions, which we'll talk about in a little bit. <laughs> so, um, after those conferences, um, so those those conferences were like the first of their kind. Uh, they, they created a community of interest um, among competing lines, which uh, paved the way for some of the more great consolidations of the early, early 20th century. Um, 
also of note, um, Morgan also financed uh, like street railroads, like street cars, mm. um, especially in New York City. He was like the main financier of that. Um, so, Dan, I know you you have a ma- major section about um, was it was it nineteen oh seven? Okay, all right. So I have another one that's from nineteen oh four. So there's a major political debacle that he got himself embroiled in in nineteen oh four. Uh, and this involved, uh, so the Northern Pacific Railway went, went bankrupt during the Great Depression of 1893. Um, that bankruptcy wiped out the railroad's bondholders, uh, which left it free of debt um, and a kind of huge, complex financial battle for the control of this railroad ensued from this whole bankruptcy situation. So in 1901, a compromise was reached between... Uh, Morgan, um, New York financier E.H. Harriman, and then a St. Paul, Minnesota-based railroad builder named James J. Hill. So to reduce expensive competition in the Midwest, uh, these people, uh, Harriman, uh, Hill, and Morgan, uh, created the Northern Securities Company to consolidate the operations of three of the region's most important railways, which were the Northern Pacific Railway, the Great Northern Railway, and the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. Uh, these consolidate these consolidators kind of ran into some unexpected com- uh, opposition. Who do you guys think he ran into opposition, opposition-wise in 1901? Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> Bingo. So, <laughs> as, as we may know, or as you may know, excuse me, um, Teddy Roosevelt was an energetic trust buster. So uh, Roosevelt considered the giant merger bad for consumers and a violation of the poorly enforced Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Uh, so in 1902, Roosevelt ordered his Justice Justice Department to sue the company to break it up. Um, so in, in 1904, the Supreme Court dissolved the Northern Security Company uh, and the railroads had to go their separate competitive ways. Um, interestingly, J.P. Morgan did not lose any mud- money on that project. Um, but uh, as far as his political reputation goes, he suffered quite a bit. So it kind of took a blow in the in the public eye, if you will. So the uh, the last part of his um, empire we have not talked about yet is steel. So after uh, Morgan's father's death in 1890, J.P. Morgan took control of the J.S. Morgan and Company, like wholesale, like he was the one who was in control of the company entirely. Um, shortly after, he began talks with Charles M. Schwab, as we mentioned, not the same Charles Schwab as the finan- financial Charles Schwab. Honestly, like uh, that's the biggest controversy of this whole miniseries. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a controversy. <laughs> so, Char- so Charles M. Schwab was the president of the... Carnegie Company, um, and so uh, Morgan started talking with Schwab and uh, Carnegie himself in 1900. Um, Morgan's goal uh, was to buy out Carnegie's steel business. Sorry, Carnegie. We went over this. Uh, Carnegie's steel business. <laughs> Twenty and, uh, <laughs> um His goal was to buy it out and then merge it with several other steel, coal, mining, and shipping firms in order to kind of vertically integrate it so that they could be more and more efficient, which, honestly, very modern idea. 
Um, after financing the creation of the Federal Steel Company, uh, Morgan merged that in, in 1901 with Carnegie Steel Company and several other steel and iron businesses, including William uh, Ederburn's Consolidated Steel and Wire Company. They formed the United States Steel Corporation, otherwise known as U.S. Steel. So U.S. Steel's goals were to achieve greater economies of scale, reduce transportation and resource costs, um, expand product lines, and improve distribution to allow the United States to compete globally with uh, the U.K. and Germany, steelmaking-wise, which were, at the time, the two biggest players in the steel market. Um, I think that's... Well, I mean, it's pretty self-apparent if you think about it, but what do the U.K. and Germany have massive reserves of? Or at least at the time? Assholes. Coal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> coal. Coal is the answer. The UK <laughs> mainly being coal from Wales. Uh, Germany. Germany's How do they get coal wait, from wait Wales? Wait a second. thought that was blubber. <laughs> <laughs> not not the uh, blowhole. <laughs> not, not the blowhole type of Wales. The, uh, no, asshole. Un- the, the completely unintelligible language Wales. <laughs> Oh, drop the H. Got it. Yes. Well, that's... Yeah, no. Which is which makes sense, because, like, if you think about it at the time, like, the steel industry in the United States, I mean, even, even now, is, lar- is largely based around areas that have just tons of coal, because you just need to keep firing those furnaces, you know? And, I mean, I know that we, we talked about the last episode, coking companies, uh, which really had a big part in the, the steel... Uh, steel uh, production industry so anyway um so schwab and others um kind of claimed that the company's size would enable to be more aggressive and and effective in uh pursuing distant international markets so basically selling their wares internationally which is one of the first attempts by a company to implement uh the modern concept of globalization which is like pretty crazy that they were one of the first companies to even you know think of like global distribution of their products. Like, sure, there were companies that like were like, we're gonna take raw materials from here and, you know, build it here and ship it there. But like as far as like vertical supply chain integration and then shipping things internationally, they were like one of the first companies to ever really like actually truly do that. Mm. So US Steel was regarded as a monopoly by many of its critics. Um since they kind of sought to dominate not only the steel production business, but the construction of bridges, ships, railroad cars, rails, wire, nails, and, you know, numerous other products. Um, With uh, U.S. Steel, uh, Morgan managed to capture two-thirds of the steel market in the United States, and uh, Charles M. Schwab was confident that the company would soon hold a uh, 75% market share. Interestingly, that was not true. After 1901, U.S. Steel's market share actually dropped. And uh, in 1903, Schwab actually resigned to form his own company, Bethlehem Steel, ah, which ended up becoming the second largest U.S. Steel company. Bad men! Um, as you might imagine, labor policy was kind of a contentious issue with the steel business, uh, as U.S. Steel was non-union, which I mentioned before. Um so um, they experienced some times where, uh, like, their steel producing, like, 
managers kind of use some pretty aggressive tactics to identify and root out uh, pro-union, as they call them, quote-unquote, troublemakers. <laughs> pretty ridiculous to call people who actually just, you know, want to start a union troublemakers, you know. I mean, granted, if you're the, you know, powers that be, they are starting some trouble, but the uh, the lawyers and bankers who had organized the uh, this whole merger, notably Morgan and uh, CEO Albert Gary, um, they were more concerned with long-range profits, stability, good public relations, and kind of avoiding trouble. That being the, the merger of um, Carnegie Steel and uh, Federal Steel. Um, so the bankers' views generally kind of prevailed. Uh, it was largely non-unionized for the longest, uh, the longest time. And uh, as I mentioned before, they kind of had a paternalistic labor policy, meaning that um, Morgan kind of felt that he, you know, he knew best and, um, you know, his policies were better than whatever the union could come up with and largely avoided unionization by actually raising wages and, you know, building houses for workers and things like that. As far as like union, union abuses in the 1900s and 1800s go, they actually treated their workers pretty well, but the part that was really pretty terrible was just the whole fact that it was paternalistic where Morgan kind of treated them like they shouldn't have representation because he knew better. Cause I think that's pretty wrong. I don't know about you guys. Sure. All right. Well, my last section here is going to be about, um, gold in the U S treasury. So, uh, in 1895, the U S federal treasury was nearly out of, out of gold. Like, <laughs> okay. Running out of money, running out of gold. <laughs> <laughs> It's during the uh, the Panic of 1893, which I believe was like a during kind of a uh, you know a major depression that was going on at the time. So uh, Morgan had put forward a plan for the federal government to buy gold from his and European banks, um, but uh, the U.S. government declined that in favor of a plan to sell bonds directly to the general public to overcome the crisis. So basically, just sell bonds to the U.S. public in order to, to, you know, you know, live through this whole thing where they were running out of gold. Because this was during the gold standard, as, you know, which, if you're unfamiliar, basically at the time, you know, we couldn't really... It was, we couldn't print money without having gold to back it up, right? That's how, kind of how that worked? Yeah, it was like, the dollar bill was like a Tied note saying, I have this much gold yeah. in my, like, account, basically. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the idea was that they could, they were going to just sell bonds to go basically you know, buy gold. Mm -hmm. um, Morgan was like sure that there was not enough time for that to happen. So he demanded and eventually obtained a meeting with Grover Cleveland, um, the president at the time, where he he claimed that the government could default that day if they didn't do something <laughs> in the meeting. Like he was like, listen, you guys could default on your debt literally today. Like, you need to do something yeah, now. That's an, that's an interesting problem. Think about the crazy, how crazy dynamics that are. You, a private individual, are coming to the U.S. government being like, listen, you're going to default on your debt today. Yeah. Final notice. That's pretty, pretty wild. So Morgan came up with this plan to use an old Civil War statute that allowed Morgan and the Rothschilds uh, to sell gold directly to the U.S. Treasury. 
uh, three and a half. Huh? Oh yeah, three and a half million ounces hmm. of gold. That's a lot of fucking money. God, That's a that lot of fucking gold. Yeah. Uh, which restored the treasury uh, to surplus, um, and they did that in exchange for a thirty-year bond issue. <laughs> um, that whole incident kind of saved the treasury. I love that. Uh, but hurt Grover Cleveland's standing with the uh, agrarian wing of the Democratic Party, <laughs> and this eventually became oh, an issue. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it mattered back then, man. The majority yeah. of this country was still in living in r- the rural. Yeah, for Good sure. Point. It so just doesn't it, sound like a very intimidating problem. No, <laughs> no, no. Well, it, it the agrarians it, are mad at me again. Well, as I'll say, this eventually became an issue in the election of 1896 uh, when uh, William Jennings ban- Bryan. Exactly. Yeah, uh, the banks came under a attack from William Jennings William Jennings Bryan. Um, so Morgan and J.P. Morgan and a lot of other Wall Street bankers ended up donating heavily to uh, the Republican candidate at the time, William McKinley, who ended up becoming elected in 1896 and re-elected in 1901. Although I think he got murdered. Is that not true? Assassinated? There was one. There's one dark horse assassination, isn't there? Yeah. We only talked about the two, but there was a third. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that William McKinley got assassinated. I'm I'm let's, looking this up right now because I, I want to find it. <laughs> okay, well, you guys can go ahead and talk. I uh, I well, gotta... he died in ni- oh. he died in 1901, assassinated in Buffalo, New York, of mm. all places. Yeah, looking That's at you, correct. Dan. I hate Buffalo. Hmm. Well, he did too. <laughs> 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 no, we liked it. That was part of the betrayal. Well, oh, okay. I got a random question though. Are are bond... Buffalo? <laughs> are bonds even a thing anymore yeah Can you go out yes yeah. yes but, but like very much so is it a smart idea it yes depends okay if you're yeah if so you like, have a lot of money that you don't need for a long time and you're really not you don't want to take any risks but you want it to grow like a teensy little bit in like eight to ten years do bonds yeah hmm. so oh, basically man. the idea i gotta is get that, out like, of bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> paul Forgot Basically, the, password. The, the idea is that the younger you are, the more you want to be invested in stocks instead of bonds. Welcome and to armchair you, finance. The older you get, the more you want bonds to become a part of that because the more stable it becomes. Okay. Because you don't want to have a bunch of money in the stock market when you're like but about if you're to buy, retire. If you're if buying it, if U.S. Fucked, if you're buying U.S. bonds, it's assuming that the GDP, you know, it's it's going to continue to increase. Correct. It's just assuming that the United States will still be in existence, really. Yeah, it's no, not yeah. even like, even if we're in oh. the middle of a recession, you can cash in your bonds. Which is why U.S. bonds but are... But they'll be lower. Well, no. No. It's oh, they're it's guaranteed. A they're it's guaranteed amount of number. Yeah. Which is what bonds are all about. Basically, it's just like, as long as the financial institution that issued them still, still exists... exists and you can get borrow your money no matter money. what yeah like the if the yeah. u.s did, didn't have money to pay back all of its bonds that were cashed in the year they just borrow more money and pay it back and then figure it out yeah which is why like bonds from a country that's relatively unstable aren't a good idea but u.s bonds are considered some of the most stable things out there uh to answer the question about mckinley i i, I actually i watched a video about this recently he was assassinated by an anarchist Named nice. Fra- uh, Leon Frank Kazolgaz. 
Oh, <laughs> I think he's. I, I was gonna say Polish, but I don't think that's actually correct. It's just. No, no, he is Polish. Yeah, there's damn Poles and their stupid names. Now I gotta say, I, I'm, hey, I'm hung up. I'm hung up on this. Oh, watch your tongue. The whole world economy is just—it's on stilts. I, there's no. Oh yeah, dude. The, the whole thing—it's just black magic. Oh, absolutely. I, honest to God, especially now. I'm I'm gonna start an armchair finance spinoff. Are you? <laughs> just for shits and giggles. Ooh, I'll listen. That's for sure. I actually would too. Yeah. I use it with my students. I just won't swear. Ah, <laughs> actually, that's a bad idea because then they'll definitely find the other episodes that we've done. I was gonna say, yeah. Swear. Actually, you might not. I you... do. Okay. I always feel bad when I swear. I just do it, and then I'm like, ah, yeah. That's why we have. <laughs> I the should have no. said that f word. No <laughs> mercy. What the frick? What no, the frick? No mercy. Hank, fuck. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I. That's yeah. That's all I got. So, Greg, uh, I only to... needed twenty minutes. Anderson. Yeah, go and look at we're at, Greg. Oh my goodness! Look, nobody's <laughs> mad, nobody's surprised, but we're here. Well, and we—I mean, granted, I had the section with his career. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else did the man do? You do have like, a point. <laughs> he had a couple. He had a couple wives that one of them was like four months. Oh, you know, Jesus. Well, it's I'm true. not. You know, I'm it's sure true. he loved her, but like she's a foot <laughs> for being honest. Uh, I'm glad you had the same logic because my notes were exactly the same. You married one yeah. wife only after you know, after you she died. Second yeah. wife a little healthier. <laughs> so Greg was taking a real like wide, wide angle view of um I almost said Carnegie. JP Morgan's career. What I'm going to do is sort of zoom in on one moment in time that really, I think, exemplifies the kind of power that he wielded, even if like his dollar figure amount didn't, you know, break any records. So I'm going to talk about the Panic of 1907. Now, the Panic of 1907 was almost single-handedly solved by J.P. Morgan, and the fact that one man had such power and influence to save the basically save the entire U.S. economy eventually led the government to create the Federal Reserve in 1913. Essentially, though, everything that J.P. Morgan does in this crisis is pretty similar to the types of things that the Federal Reserve can do uh, in order to help the economy today. So, like, because of what J.P. Morgan did as one individual in 1907, um, the government basically designed an institution to be able to do the same and more to help the economy. And honestly, as I was reading through this, getting ready to explain it, it, it just, I mean, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. This rhymes pretty heavily with the 2008 financial crisis. So if you've ever watched any, you know, if you've watched like Too Big to Fail or um, anything about the 2008 financial crisis, you'll probably think that a couple of times as I'm talking through it. So what you need to understand is there was, in like 1907, there was a very limited amount of liquid cash in the economy and no real way to like inject new cash into a region or into a specific industry 
which is a very common way to like save companies or save the economy is like, it's like adding gas to the tank of your car, right? When you, when you introduce new cash, um, to an area or to an industry, there wasn't really a good way to do that. Um, the amount of cash in like big banking cities like New York, um, basically varied with the harvest schedule. So in August, when all of like the plain states would harvest their crops and sell, cash would move from the cities out into the rural area. And then you would have these like cash deserts in the cities. So the economy would slow down. And it was just kind of like this expected volatility every single year. But between April 1906 and August 1907, there were a series of just enormous problems, pretty unexpected, like just sort of out of the blue, out of the ordinary problems that absolutely annihilated the U.S. economy and tanked the stock market. I'm not going to get into the details of what those were, though. That's just too much. Um, But basically what you have here is a bomb ready to go off. And all it would take is just a little itty-bitty spark. Um, and, and in 1907, really within like three weeks of each other, there ended up being, hold on, let me count, one, two, three, four, five sparks, things that I'll call sparks. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Everyone. <laughs> but one man, J.P. Morgan, put out all five sparks. Saves the day. Impressive. Yeah. So spark number one. Um, Basically, a small group of individuals tried to corner the copper market, but failed. I'm not going to go into what cornering the market means. I tried to read up on it. It's way too confusing. Um, But essentially, what it it led to was the copper stock or stock in copper, you know, companies just began to plummet. And so basically, all people and banks and businesses that relied on that stock started to feel it, right? So this chain of events was unleashed that led to eventually led to a massive run on a bank um on a group of banks known as the knickerbocker trust company what a what a 20th century sounding business oh the knickerbocker Knickerbocker trust company (laughs) like buy 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 sell 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 i was gonna say like how, how much you want to bet their their company logo was just suspenders? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, did they like... own own the Knicks? Where was it based? New York. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A- any relation? Absolutely. Well, the Knicks is short for Knickerbocker. I was gonna oh, say. Really? Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that came from like the person who owned the arena, and they were named after the arena. I can't remember. I don't remember the details of it. But yeah, the mm-hmm. I've, full always, name is... I've always. I've always thought that was one of the more goofy sports teams names. There's so many comedians have made jokes about these things, you know, but mm-hmm. like there's some really silly names out there. Yeah. Knickerbocker really does it on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that one's a little bit. You. That one's pretty goofy. Kane, Kane, you're going to be Kane. You'll, you'll be a good one to talk to here. We're talking goofy sports names. Cause we're talking about huh. the Knickerbocker, the New York Knickerbockers, which is the New York Knicks. Yeah. There's some seriously goofy ones out there. Like, who fears a dolphin? True. <laughs> Nobody. Uh, well, the it's so Miami, the... though. I, it is very Miami, but like... The Texas y- Christian University one is funny. 
right? What Horned is that? frogs. Horned frogs? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. You know what my favorite is? Um, University mm. of Southern Illinois, Salukis. Oh, the dog. Salukis. Yeah, the dog. <laughs> yeah. Salukis. The little prairie dog with way too much hair. I just met a couple people who went to that school, and I didn't even put <laughs> two and two together. What happened to that uh, horn? Did I lose it? What's that? What? Dan, you had like one of those cone megaphones that said oh, Salukis. Yeah. You know, you're like, Salukis! Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's good. That's a way back. No, I got to say, so not sports team related, but when I was in the Boy Scouts. Um, oh, so- yeah. Kane, Kane, I literally yes. only saw I, I literally only saw the whites of your eyes when you rolled your eyes yeah. that hard. That was, that was good. Um, Glad no, I missed so, all of that. You didn't miss anything. I'm, I'm not even done. So, um, <laughs> wait, what? Boy, Boy Scout troops are broken down and Boy Scout troops are broken down into patrols. One of the troops I was in at one point had a patrol called the Bob White Patrol. That sounds like, that sounds like the name of a man. A Bob White is a bird. Oh. Okay. Yeah, that's Mikey's brother, Bob White. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's his just like his brother's a bird. I refused. Yeah. <laughs> I refused to believe that. I was like, no, that's that's a name. That's like guy. no, it's it's a bird, and I had to Google it. No, yeah, it turns out the Bob White is actually a bird. I laughed to the point of tears the other day when I listened. I can't remember the episode, but when Kane, you mentioned your father brother Daniel Drew. Oh, yeah. That was good. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. That was uh, that was that during one of our uh, tinfoil uh, plane episodes. No, that was uh, Rockefeller, I think, wasn't it? Oh, okay. Gotcha. I, think so. <laughs> I lost it. Or yes. no, it was Vanderbilt. Sorry. It was Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. That was so good. <laughs> uh, okay, so where were we? The Knickerbocker Trust Company. Yes. Yeah. So, um, a bunch of people are running down the street to try and get their money out of this bank because it's not looking good, right? So on October 22nd, 1907, more than $8 million was withdrawn from the Knickerbocker Trust Company in less than three hours. Oh, my God. Which forced them to suspend their operation. So apparently when you're a bank, you just, like, close your doors. You can, like, survive another day. Back then. Um, <laughs> but this, uh, this really scared a lot of other banks who now wanted to like try to increase the amount of cash they had on hand so that they could sustain themselves in a run like that. And so they increased their interest rates a bunch to, to bring people's cash in. But the problem yeah. is they also, that also means they're lending out less money and, loans was a major way that people invested in the stock market back then like most of the money going into the stock market was like joe schmo borrows a thousand dollars to invest and hopefully make more money so it sounds like people on wall street bets putting money in their Robinhood accounts from their credit cards exactly yep. yes <laughs> that is exact god those memes are outrageous those stress me oh, out i know alone. Oh, the memes on there are just sometimes horrifying, just based mm-hmm. on the number of number of dollars involved. Exactly, which is why I do the exact same thing, but with like ten dollars. Right. I treat it as disposable, Did and it's this? actually worked out quite well. I've got about a twenty percent return so far. All right. So uh, these other banks tried to do what they could do, but it didn't work. So within two days, eleven more banks and trust companies would fail. 
And the thing you need to know about these trust companies is they are connected to like dozens of other businesses and corporations. So when one of these goes down, you're talking, it could be 20, 30, or 40 other businesses that are going to feel it and possibly fail. Jeez. So everybody looked to JP Morgan real quick because of what he did, as Greg described, to help the Treasury. Uh, and so on the afternoon of Tuesday, October 22nd, the president of the Trust Company of America asked Morgan for assistance. It's just a, it's just a name. It's just a company. Um, so that evening, Morgan conferred with um, George F. Baker, the president of First National Bank, James Stillman of the National Citibank of New York, which is the ancestor of Citibank, and the United States Secretary of the Treasury, George B. Corteliu. Corteliu said that he was ready to deposit government money into the banks in order to help shore them up and help them weather the storm. So as a run began on the Trust Company of America, Morgan worked with Stillman and Baker to liquidate the company's assets to help them pay the, uh, the depositors, the people trying to get their money out. And the bank survived to the close of business, but Morgan knew that additional money would be needed in order to keep it solvent through the following day. So we're really day by day here. That night, he assembled the presidents of other trust companies and held them in a meeting until midnight when they finally agreed to provide loans of $8.25 million to allow the Trust Company of America to stay open the next day. So he basically brought in rivals of the company and said, you know, got them to pay up to keep the other one alive. On Thursday morning, Cortelyu deposited around $25 million into a large number of New York banks. John D. Rockefeller, the wealthiest man in the U.S., deposited another $10 million into Stillman's National City Bank. Rockefeller's massive deposit Fuck. left the National City Bank with the deepest reserves of any bank in the city. And to further instill public confidence, Rockefeller phoned the manager of the Associated Press and said he would pledge half of his wealth to maintain U.S. credit. So the fear started to lessen briefly. However, and unbeknownst to Wall Street, a new crisis was being averted in the background. So that brings us to spark number two. Now, on Sunday of the same week, Morgan was infirmed that the city of New York required at least $20 million by November 1st, or it would go bankrupt. So the city was in, in, in a deep hole here. They needed $20 million by the end of the month, or else they would go bankrupt. And they tried to raise the money on their own with a bond issue, but it completely failed. Nobody purchased the bonds. Nobody even believed in the city of New York. So on Monday and again on Tuesday, New York Mayor George McClellan approached Morgan for assistance. So now he's dealing with crisis number two. In an effort to avoid the disastrous signal that New York City bankruptcy would send, Morgan contracted to purchase... $30 million worth of the city's bonds. I don't know where he got the money. So, spark number three, on Saturday, November uh, 2nd, so uh, just like uh, maybe less than two weeks later, maybe a week later, one of the stock exchange's largest brokerage firms called Moore & Schley was heavily in debt 
and in danger of collapse. The firm had borrowed heavily and used its iron and steel company called TCNI as collateral. So again, you have this bank in trouble, and if they go, so do several companies, including this massive steel company. So to avert the collapse of Moore and Schley, J.P. Morgan called an emergency conference at his library Saturday morning. A proposal was made that the U.S. Steel Corporation would acquire TCNI, and this would effectively save Moore and Schley and avert the crisis. Now, unfortunately, by 7 p.m. that Saturday, an agreement had not been reached, and the meeting adjourned. But in the middle of that, Morgan was drawn into another situation, spark number four. There was deep concern that the Trust Company of America and the Lincoln Trust might fail to open on Monday due to continuing runs by depositors. On Saturday evening, 40 to 50 bankers gathered at the library, uh, Morgan's home library, Mm -hmm. to discuss the crisis with the clearinghouse bank presidents in the East Room and the trust company executives in the West Room. Morgan and those dealing with the Moore and Schley situation from earlier moved to the librarian's office. There, Morgan told his counselors that he would agree to help shore up Moore and Schley only if the trust companies would work together to bail out their weakest brethren, these two, uh, these two trusts that are on the brink. So the discussion among the bankers continued late into Saturday night, but without much progress. Around midnight, J.P. Morgan informed a leader of the trust company presidents that keeping Moore and Schley afloat would require $25 million, and he would not commit those funds unless the problems with the trust companies could also be resolved. So he's kind of like, he's kind of making a wager here with these powerful bankers, saying like, look, I'll save this guy over here if you save those two. But if we don't save them, you're all going down. So at 3 a.m., about 120 bank and trust company officials assembled to hear a full report. Like 5 a.m. Sorry, that was for Kane. Oh, okay. Thank you. To hear a full report on the status of the failing trust companies. As discussion ensued, the bankers realized that Morgan had locked them in the library and pocketed the key to force a solution. Morgan informed them that if they did not act, it would lead to a complete collapse of the banking system. So within about an hour and a half, he managed to persuade them, and they all signed on to the deal. So he had these commitments, right? It's Saturday, it's Sunday morning, 4.45, he's got these commitments, but now he's got to make it happen. So Sunday afternoon and into the evening, he and his partners are working out the details. But one obstacle remained. Spark number five, the antitrust crusading President Teddy Roosevelt. Because remember, at the center of this deal that would save the U.S. economy, U.S. Steel would be buying basically their second biggest competitor at the time, TC&I. And so that was a huge merger and so they needed to convince the president that it'd be okay um so they overnight train it's remember sunday night now into monday early monday morning they're training into washington to try and meet the president 
the president's secretary kind of stops them at first, delays them. Finally, they get to meet with the president, and he relents. They convince Teddy Roosevelt, of all people, to let this insane, massive steel merger go through in order, basically because they explained to him. He said, look, if you don't do this, the economy is going to absolutely tank, and there's no telling if we'll be able to get out of it or not. And so he does. He lets them do the merger, and it goes through. The other trust companies follow suit with their commitment. They inject a bunch of cash into the two sort of weakest of the trust companies who survive the runs on the banks. And immediately, um, it's pretty much immediate relief. And the economy starts churning again, like the next day. Stock market doesn't crash. People start recouping their jobs and profits and... Just like that, in the course of like a week and a half, J.P. Morgan orchestrated the save of the U.S. economy. What a magician. Economic magician. So it's... That's that's impressive. Yeah, and it's not like... It's not like he has all the money in the world. You know, he has a ton of money, but like... It's not like he's doing this on his own, but he orchestrates, you know several of the richest people on the planet basically to i think this i think this comes back to the like my point about his paternalist paternalism you know yeah where he was an incredibly smart man very very much a big picture man you know where he he could understand the implications of you know what one company failing or another company failing or something like that how that impacts the big picture like it, it seems to me like that was his big asset was his, his ability to see how small things affected the big picture. Yeah. And, uh, and this is a perfect, what you were just describing that whole story is a perfect example of that, where he was the, like one guy that was like, listen, if you fuck this up, the country's going under and managed to convince people that that was the case. Yeah. And that's, and by convince, I mean, Get them to shell out got, millions. Got them of to see the light. Got them to see the light, and yeah, like save the U.S. economy. Yeah, Paul. Paul's going to get into a little bit, but I mean, this, these actions that were taken, these are the actions of government agencies nowadays. You know, yeah, not individual no, like, people. But granted, we didn't really have those kind of agencies at the time. You know, like we didn't have that those kinds of safeguards. Precisely, because these are like the first times that these, you know, some of the first times that stuff like this was happening and so there's just no agency to deal with situations like this because it never happened before well it happened it happened a lot not to this like level but yes but yeah not to the point where it would cripple yeah not where to where it would cripple the u.s economy you know but uh i'm glad i got to talk about that i was really excited for this portion of the episode that was very interesting who's next <clears throat> does anybody have anything to say about his nose? Oh, Paul I does. Do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. That's me. I do. Um, well, right. hey, I'll tell you what. I'm just going to get my stuff out real quick because it's not much. <laughs> and uh, Paul can wrap us up. Uh, I just want to talk about some of his misses. Just a few of his misses. Well, I guess I've also got a list of the opposite well, had, of that. Well, so. he had one misses for about four months. Hey, oh, come on now. Oh, uh, <laughs> Get your prize now. 
did uh, I'm going to feel real stupid if one of you guys mentioned this already, or Paul, if you have someone, please speak up. Anything on the Puho Commission? Negative. Nope. Okay, fantastic. We'll start with that. This was very shortly before his death, I think, Morgan's, because this is in December of 1912, and the Puho Committee was a congressional committee. I'm I'm loving. I'm having a hard time not like enjoying saying Puho more. But uh, it's this guy, Arsene Puho, a congressman from Louisiana. And they were looking into how just a few people in Wall Street had almost complete control of the financial system in the United States, uh, Morgan being one of these. In fact, one of the, I guess, you know, people involved in this compared, if you combined J.P. Morgan & Co., and then the directors of First National and National Citibank, which became Citibank, mm. they combined had more money than all of the combined value and property of the 22 states west of the Mississippi River. <sighs> oh, <laughs> shit, dude. Oh, which was, God. at the time, $22.24 billion. Wait, at the time, they were I'm in guessing. the billions? Oh, um, my God. I mean, no, that makes sense, because we've talked about the GDP. Yeah. Being like 90 or, you know, God. Right. That's crazy. Uh, and this, the Puo Commission actually, you know, it kind of, well, I guess their findings were that, yes, these people were controlling more than they should. And some, some very important things were kind of spurned from this, including the ratification of the 16th Amendment came pretty shortly after this, which is the federal income tax one. <clears throat> the passage of I the... Know, so you're talking about when exactly? Because the, the federal income tax, did that not come like right after prohibition? Because my understanding is that like the federal income tax was largely levied as a way to recoup the taxes that we had from alcohol. Because once we banned alcohol, like that was like literally like 30% or more of the U.S. tax base was alcohol taxes. Yeah, uh, well, it says uh, levy an income tax without apportioning it among the states on the basis of population. Hmm. So uh, you're on your own for that one, Greg. I'll continue. Well, just, what, the, what year was this again? That's that's what I was asking mainly. Twelve. Nineteen twelve. Okay. All right. Well, that's way before Probit. Interesting. There is. I know Maybe what you're talking about. There is some tax thing from. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go go ahead. Just, sorry. Just an interesting oh. thing I was hearing about the other day is. Never mind. Okay. The passage of the Federal Reserve Act came out of this, and as well as the Clayton Antitrust Act. In, and actually, I think the House of, I almost said House of Solomon. That was weird. The House <laughs> of Morgan tried to sue, or they, they said that um, the grilling he got in that commission was what led to his death. Oh, my God. Oh, really? Whoa. This is like a congressional committee? That, that's a bold move. Yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious. Now, for actual investments that didn't really pan out, we've got a couple. Now, would, would you believe me if I told you we're going to be talking about Nikola Tesla in this episode? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, same oh. time period. Yeah. That makes sense. So, Morgan sponsored... Quite a bit. He he gave Tesla one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
I'd give a I've get, I'd give Tesla $150,000 right now. Is that another Wall Street bets joke, Greg? Yes, that was another Wall Street bets joke. Which is the equivalent of $4.6 million in 2019. I, I do own stock in Tesla though. Do you own $4.6 million? No, of course not. I don't even have four. Then shut the fuck up. <laughs> so he was given, <laughs> he gave Tesla this money to build what would compete with what a fellow by the name of Guglielmo Marconi was developing at the same time, which we now call radio. And oh my God. he gave him this money in return for a 51% control of the patents from it. But. Basically, as soon as Penn touched paper and the deal was signed, uh, Tesla immediately was like, okay, let's do this wireless data transmission thing that you're trying to get me to do, and also wireless electrical transmission. Let's also do that at the same place. So Morgan backs out pretty much immediately, and um, you haven't heard of this product today, and that's why. Oh, jeez. You should look up. That'd be really cool. (laughs) Yeah, you should look up the Wardenclyffe Tower. Because that's Tesla built like a prototype of of the transmission tower, and it looks rather scary almost. Uh, he also tried to. This is number two here. Morgan tried to compete with the London Underground. He tried to make his own subway system in London, and you know didn't actually get parliamentary approval because it was blocked by the guy that made the London Underground. Sounds a lot like Tesla and his uh Yeah, the hyperloop. Yep. He I saw him tweet that he was like, I'm somebody the like mayor of Miami tweeted at him talking about like congestion problems. And he's like, let's just build some tunnels. It's like under Miami? Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you think yeah. that one's gonna work? Bad you idea. You mean the Bad sand idea. and water? <laughs> yeah, yeah, mostly the latter. Uh yeah, he was trying to build the Piccadilly City and Northeast London Railway. Would have also been underground. Piccadilly is a very London word. You it can, really you is. Cannot, it's not even abnormal there, which is the most ridiculous thing. And another rather untimely, this is the third and final of these unsuccessful ventures. This one's a big one. And this was another thing right before his death. But he had this thing called the International Mercantile Marine Company. And that was his attempt to kind of monopolize transatlantic shipping and one of the big reasons it didn't work out was because one of the subsidiaries of this company that he owned was the white star line which famously took a big financial hit when their unsinkable ship titanic sunk on its maiden voyage so wait so unsinkable unless you encounter an iceberg yeah so oh, Dan, I, yeah, I know. I, oh, I mentioned yeah. it earlier to her. Um, so, <laughs> so he owned this, like, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like conglomerate that included this, like, transatlantic shipping line. Is that Are you asking me? Yeah. Like, so inter- wait, what are you asking? International. <laughs> I just, I guess I just, I, been, just, a, just like trying to get it straight. Company. So, International Mercantile, Mercantile Marine, Marine <clears throat> owned company. like multiple ships. Uh, they were trying lines. to monopolize the entire transatlantic shipping, and not just shipping, shipping but trade. like they wanted to get the whole kind of supply mm. chain involved. 
Okay. Like owning, you know, ports as well as the boats. So part of that was the White Star Line. Yes. Yep. Oh. And that really hurt him? It basically ruined the International Mercantile Marine Company. The only reason they didn't completely go under is because uh, they were commissioned just a few years after when we needed boats in World War I. Otherwise, they surely would have... Mm. gone under they actually re-emerged as a company called the united states lines but that went bankrupt in 86 <laughs> so ultimately yeah. you know didn't work out either. i gotta say i gotta say like op- open ocean boats that's something i've never really read a whole lot about like so you have read shipping. a lot about the other kind of boats or yeah like i'm lake boats I'm, river boats yeah. <laughs> pontoon speed Swamp cigarette boats. you name it sky boats <laughs> canoes kayaks Catamarans, I will take yachts, every sailboats, <laughs> skippers. I'll take every bit of this abuse, but um, dinghies. No, <laughs> I may. I mainly just know about Great Lakes freighters. All right, just the Corvettes, one, though, right? Because you no, listen to that song. No, not just the one. You listen to that stupid about, song. No, I've read you about like Gordon many Lightfoot, other. Greg, Low Bridge, everybody down. Sorry, Low Greg. Bridge, because we're coming to the town. <laughs> I've spent Where was that hours, the Buffalo disaster? I spent hours driving to locations where I can see modern freighters load up their ore along oh. the coast of Lake Superior. Actually, I'm I'm hopefully buying a motorcycle tomorrow. That is this, not in the, the spirit of this podcast. Yes, it is. We Shut pride ourselves in not going anywhere but telling people about the world. Correct. Dang it, Greg. For I, Wait, Greg. I am I am purchasing a motorcycle for the express purpose to ride around the entirety of Lake Superior. Wow. That's actually That's really actually cool. That's actually really cool. <laughs> Thank you. That's um, what I want to do. I want to do that this year. I now, want to make that happen. Greg, I'm sorry. But I'd like to finish. Well, yeah. Well, so, the prize is <laughs> he gets to finish. Yeah. <laughs> the I've now I've got I'm like to completely 180 and transition to this guy underwrit a lot of corporations, especially ones that you've heard of. So, you know, obviously incredibly successful. I'm gonna list a couple that are funny. They have funny okay. names, and then I'm gonna oh. list the ones you've Great heard start. of. And right. then I'll guess I'll rapid fire the other ones. All right. But there's two that really stick out to me. Uh just on name alone. National Tube. <laughs> it's one of these companies. And then this one has a totally different meaning in the context of today, but it's a company called Boomer Coal and Coke. <laughs> but he also underwrit the corporate 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 incorporation. There we go. The incorporation of AT&T the Federal Steel Company, General Electric, perhaps you've heard of it. Whoa! International Harvester. Holy shit. And U.S. Steel. That's a lot of big names. As well as, sorry, I was counting 24 railroads. (laughs) And then we've got 24 railroads. And then the American Bridge Company, Associated Merchants, Atlas Portland Cement Company, Hartford Carpet Corporation, (laughs) The Inspiration Consolidated Copper Company, International Mercantile Marine, we've talked about that, J.I. Case Threshing Machine, United Dry Goods. So Case ended up 
So J.I. Case ended up eventually merging with uh, International Harvester, and that's what Case IH is today. Ah. God. Yes, I've seen this on farming equipment. Well, I mean, Case, so, so that's why you see, like, you don't see International on, on farm equipment these days. Um, and uh, you usually just see, like, Case IH. Yeah. Because um, Case ended up being the company that, that like, was, like, the namesake of that. Sure. Um, which is interesting considering the fact that International is largely the one that's like the bigger conglomerate and the bigger name in the ag industry. Mm-hmm. But the ag industry is super weird where there's a lot of like international buyouts and stuff like that. Because um, I know that like International was like briefly owned by like I want to say a Spanish company or something like that. But yeah, no, like super weird because like some of the biggest names in Europe for like, I, you know, like farming equipment, just completely irrelevant in the United States, even though we grow it's similar basically stuff. It's, shipping. it's just, it's yeah, it's very similar stuff. It's just shipping, <clears throat> shipping costs that make the difference. Right. Okay. Well, that's all I got, Paul. Are you uh, ready to finally take the stand? Yes. The first time I'm gl- in a month. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the transatlantic like kind of shipping ordeals um because greg like how you mentioned earlier when jp morgan's father died he took control of js morgan company yeah um and, and basically what that was is just leading investment bank in london um so what jp did was he moved over half of the kind of business ordeals to the u.s mm-hmm. mainly obviously so it'd be closer geographically so it could be better in charge um yeah. But most interesting with that and the timing of that, too, is he basically cornered um, or he basically became the British government's purchasing and financial agent during oh, okay. World War One. So everything that I've, I've I've heard a little bit about that, every, there was like a, sec, a section about some of my notes about like, well, that I didn't talk about that were just like. World War One and him. Yes. Which I'm sure you'll go into here now, but, you know. But. Yeah, so when, you know, the UK and, you know, like France and all them, they're trying to buy, you know, stuff from... The US. The US, because we weren't getting involved in the war right away. Yeah. So, like, that was exactly. the number one thing we were doing. And then also... So, humop- can monopolizing- I jump in here real quick? Because I have sure. a question. Sure, so, sure. you mean, like, if Britain is trying to get supplies for their military... And the U.S. Yes. is selling. He would like negotiate the contracts. No, he would fund the money. Oh my god! <laughs> because you got to think, like Great Britain is trying to—they're spending all their money into war. Yeah, but they need more salaries. You know, and stuff. yeah. Well, god. I mean, not even that, but just materials. You know. It's so my, my understanding crazy. is that he would probably just like pump fluid cash into it and accept bonds from the British military. Yes, probably. Or yeah. from the British government, you know. Yeah. So because his his whole thing was like, you know, I'll pump ten million dollars in, but you gotta guarantee me twelve million dollars in five years. So mm-hmm. this man had that kind of thing, you know. I mean he had basically he was bet but he was betting on the existence of the British military or British government, yeah. you know, essentially. He had yeah, multiple hey. governments in debt to him. Yeah, yeah. No, that's why that's why it's like the 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 name of this podcast should really be when the world's governments run out of money, J.P. Morgan didn't. 
I thought you meant like the whole series. And I was like, what is he about to no, say? No, just no, no, just this episode. Just well, we can find out a clever name for it. But, you know, just the overarching concept to me is just that when the world's governments run out of money, J.P. Morgan won't. Basically, yeah, yeah, he just he just had and he, you know, built up an empire to the point where he had more financial solvency than many of the world's largest economies at the time. Yes. So he basically and was able to facilitate deals based on that. Yep. So he basically was the sole kind of guy for that. And then also, you know, kind of continued that on in the post-war financial reconstruction in Europe. Um, okay. So after World War One, mm, that makes sense. Um, yep. Especially being like London based for a lot of his time, that makes sense. Absolutely. So his, his British connections definitely helped him out there. Yep. And then you also mentioned so a lot of this is like his later years. Um, that's kind of like the category or section I'm kind of going over here. But mm-hmm. um, you're talking about like U.S. Steel, um, basically yeah. just the uh, negotiations and stuff like that. It's sold for. Four hundred and eighty million dollars, and then uh, once he bought out other businesses as well, and it's kind of merged them all into U.S. Steel Corporation. When they were first introduced or uh, went public with their stock, it was authorized a one point four billion dollar market cap. At the time, that was the very first billion dollar company in the world. Ever. Oh my god! So. Uh, might be a softball question for you guys, but what company and then how much are they worth is the um, high or uh, I guess biggest company in the world right now today? High, highest market cap? Yes, correct. Um, I want to say obviously Amazon, but if, if it's not, it's Tesla maybe because Tesla is just nope boomed as far as actual ca- like cash goes as far as is it something we've heard of yes absolutely amazon is number four. Oh, okay okay is it walmart, um, is, apple? It, is, it walmart? it is apple. apple it is apple oh, okay how, yeah. how much is it worth i want to say like you said market cap right yeah market cap 800 billion that's what amazon's worth apples is 1.172 oh. trillion dollars Holy shit. Oh so I believe I believe well, Apple is the first trillion dollar market cap. You know, now that 20. you mentioned that, I think I remember hearing about that as the headline, but it just kinda you know. Yep. So just in comparison. Like and that too, well, like steel. Well once you once steel, you get over the like the five hundred billion dollar point, it's just like everything is just over my head entirely. It's just like sure, hard to conceptualize. Sure, sure. So like uh steel though, you gotta remember too, you know, there's Kind of a limit, in a sense. Like, yeah. you're always going to be building buildings, so it's always going to have money. But it's not like, unless you invent some new type of steel and reconstruct all the buildings over again, you're never going to reach such high levels where Apple, technology-wise, like, yeah. just Silicon Valley, that's going to keep on growing and growing. So, but um, but yeah, just some fun facts about his steel life. That's, that's pretty crazy, got to say. Yep, and then kind of just wrapping up him as a person. Um, I didn't have too much on his personal life, but uh, like you said before, he was married to Amelia Sturgis uh, for all of, you know, four, Me. A, a year, like, roughly. Um, <laughs> yeah, four months. <laughs> um, or she, you know, 
She Correct. died of TB. Not the not the noise I intended to make. That was supposed that to be was a croak. Incredibly tasteless, <laughs> Greg. Terrible. <laughs> that was supposed to be a croak, but I I just snorted. That stays Unreal. in. Do not. Cut Perhaps that it out. is you who are the pig, Greg. <laughs> oh, that was tasteless. Yes. All right. But the second wife, a little bit better of health. Uh, Francis Louisa yeah. Tracy. Uh, they married in 1865, so not too long after um, the death of his first wife. And they had four kids, um, one of them being J.P. Morgan Jr., um, but he also had three daughters, um, Louisa, Juliet, and Anne. So. Yeah, but this is the 1800s. We don't care about daughters. <laughs> At the time, correct. Um, yeah, that, that's the joke, yeah. And uh, uh, some of the like personality stuff, which probably, I mean, most influenced his um business personality was he was a very large man with piercing eyes as he's been described and he also had a john 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 pierce pont morgan he had uh he had a purple nose to his uh rosacea if i'm saying that right um and one of it or uh jp his jp jr actually said that you know he probably could have got his rosacea fixed to be a little bit more presentable besides his giant grotesque purple nose um but apparently he had uh seizures as a kid and he was very very worried of that coming back after a a surgery or procedure um to fix it so you know he was obviously like i can't be the big you know a giant businessman and having seizures it's not gonna work so so he just decided to look ugly basically (laughs) i was gonna say that's kind of a surprising trade off there's a caveat because he looked ugly as hell but he made them airbrush his nose normal in all photos he had taken of him yep all of his professional portraits had to be retouched until he approved of them yep Uh, um and and he looks even more like it's just the nose really but you can see there's a couple pictures where it's real knobby like a side angle picture um looks like me (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, you know, fucked up nose, Greg. <laughs> oh yeah, he was uh uh he was so self conscious. Um, he despised being photographed like in public. Um, that at times he would actually like go after and like, like grab his cane and try to beat the shit out of like photographers. <laughs> so he was a very like very, yeah very aggressive. <laughs> um, That's so funny. But it did Awful. it did drive his personality too because like uh, he very much the people he did business with. He, you know, he would judge them in based off of their confidence of like, okay, can they fucking, um, they, can they meet him squarely and, and just not shy away from his ugliness, <laughs> which it's kind of funny to think like, that's how he's jugging, ju- judging people. It's like, you know, look at my face, you know, <laughs> give me your money. Look at my face. <laughs> look at me. I will only s- save your company if you look me in the eye. Yeah, exactly, to a T. So I know I missed uh, the last two Magnate stuff, but I remember in our first episode of Rockefeller, we talked about his homes a little bit. So I'm going to grab this link for you guys, um, and we can toss a photo up on the Instagram as well. Um, first fact, and it's not associated with the link, but um, he had a, the very first home um, I guess private residence in New York to have electricity. He was the person who owned it. Yeah. No shit. 
So it's like, again, I've got money. Thought, you know, you almost think about it today as like, huh, what do rich people have in their homes that we don't? Because <laughs> back then it was oh electricity where like every single home has electricity now. But but yes, if you're looking at the link, so he owned an island on the north shore of Long Island, uh, which had six separate homes on it. Um, but the island was put up for sale in 2017 for $125 million. Um, without scrolling too far in there, uh, can you guess what the property taxes of that is? <laughs> no, I don't even have a way to <laughs> begin to guess what property taxes cost on something like this, let alone a regular. I have no idea anything about property taxes. Yeah, I guess we're a little <laughs> young for that one yet, but I can't. Either way, so it, the property taxes of the island are $570,000 a year. Dear God. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's one thing to have the, like, oh, I saved up my pennies for a $125 million island. Now you need to <laughs> be a magnate right. like JP mm. to just pay the taxes and the taxes alone. Dude, so. some of the rooms in that place, man, like, it's trying to get myself straight here it's it's one thing to have like nice wallpaper or like a real solid color with some pop and trim or some you know crown molding or something but like his place that place that you just sent us has like murals (laughs) in the hallway (laughs) i gotta say it's nice but I still think compared to our previous episode about Vanderbilt's, there's no comparison. Oh, that was the Vanderbilt, the Vander, of course. The Vanderbilt mansion and seeing it in person but, is a is a whole nother ball game. But like, having an island adds. Oh, yeah, I that's I can't true. argue with that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but it's it's kind of interesting because like. You know, I'd rather have when you a house in when you North Carolina than look, an island. When you look at those rooms and stuff like that, and then like let's compare it to like the White House or like Capitol buildings and stuff like that. It's like, hmm, it almost like makes the White House look kind of not Dumpy. as nice. <laughs> yeah, I've got an island question for you guys, and I'm sorry about nope. the subject matter. Go ahead. <laughs> Do you think anybody is going to buy Little St. James, Jeffrey Epstein's island? Or, like, what is going to happen to that island? Because he owned it outright. That's a, that's a good question. And that's, like, who's going to want to buy that? Especially where, uh, with that where, temple. Where is the island again? In the American Virgin Islands. Yeah, which is hilarious. Right off of yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it is a little funny. Yeah. Um, I got to say, somebody will buy it just because... It's an island. I know, I know that, island. like, the U.S. Virgin Islands is, like, a popping vacation spot just because of the fact that you don't have to have like a passport to go there you know and it'll be totally different if they just change the name of the island just make it like yeah, yeah. We're gonna and call the, it. like got rid of everything there in bezos yeah. land it'd be pretty bezos easy to, land jesus it'd be Bezosia. pretty easy to what i could what i could say is that if they leave the buildings intact nobody will ever want to go there no especially if that they, temple if they just if they, just, <laughs> yeah. if, if they demolish if they demolish everything yeah no like people will go there for sure for it's sure. not that hard to get people to go to an island if you just yeah yeah no erase it of all history. Yeah. Um, my final couple points here uh, before we get into a little bit of his um, 
I guess. Oh boy, end this of is life gonna be a long legacy. One. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> no, dude, we did it with three people last time. Don't apologize. <laughs> uh, um, I titled this one. In case you didn't know, he has money. Um, <laughs> it wasn't clear by now. <laughs> it wasn't clear by now. Um, he was an avid. Excellent. He was an avid yachtsman. Which, just to be called <laughs> that alone, I think. Yeah, you know, you got to at least have when you do it enough millions of a name, like a title, millions yeah. of dollars. Um, so he owned several different vessels. Um, and he was quoted, "If you have to ask what the price is, you can't afford it." He started that. That's incredible. He coined oh, yeah. that phrase. Yeah, I, I don't know. God. I don't know if it was coined, but it was well. <laughs> you know, he said that like to the news when they were asking, He's like quoted as saying that. That's incredible. Absolutely, yes. God. Um, so yes, man of many boats to include the Titanic. The, the man who inspired the phrase price upon request. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, if you have to ask. Um, he was a notable collector of many like artistic like objects and things like books, pictures, paintings, and other art objects. Yeah. Um, well, he was a, he had very a, much in- He had his own museum, museum, um, especially after he passed, like his son uh, JP Jr. put a lot of that um in his museum, but he also donated um, and was a benefactor for like other museums um, and, and universities as well as like Harvard and Trinity university and stuff like that too. So um, but what kind of more interesting though, is he became one of America's most important. It's weird that they said important, but important gem collectors <laughs> and a collection of well over a, like a thousand pieces of gems cool yeah very yeah very interesting um he exhibited his collection at the world's fair in paris in 1889 and won two golden awards for them nice no clue what that means but you know it's important (laughs) to someone so Um, (laughs) you got two um, historians i guess (laughs) exactly um which we should bring those back a world's fair i think that'd be kind of cool cool. why'd they stop my dad went to one i think it was World War One was COVID. No, <laughs> no, I, no, no. Oh, I thought it was no, the World Wars. My 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 dad went to one. So, oh. um, well, your dad's at least two hundred years old. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it's not true. I was gonna say you went to one in like 1990, dude. Like, oh really? Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm looking at this right now. So, World Expo '88 was in Brisbane. Uh, um. I want to say my dad went to one in Canada. Because that sounds right. That does um, sound right. <laughs> he might have got... Uh, it might have been Montreal. It would have been... No, no. Anyway, continue on. Yep. Um, so a couple more things about his gem collection. He was. He even had a gem named after him called Morganite. <laughs> nice. So, because why in fact, you know, because why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and in 1964, several of his gems were stolen by thieves out of his museum. Um, really? yes, they stole an estimated four hundred and ten thousand dollars worth of jewels, uh, which is worth three million dollars today. JP Morgan, unlike those jewel thieves, just want to watch the world earn. Oh, <laughs> good transition. That, huh? Because uh, it's about a jewel his, thief. That original line. Oh, into his uh, into his death. That urn. Um, I have a task for you. 
I need you guys to go into Google and type in what did JP Morgan die of and tell me what the, I guess, Google depression. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how, how like sad is that? <laughs> uh, oh no. He died that, of a broken heart. <laughs> <laughs> that's just like to kind of put it in perspective for everyone in the world. That is the essence of more money, more problems. Yeah. An Egyptian doctor so, examined him and pronounced him well. Which is, yeah, which is because he was um, on like a vacation tour-esque. So he died. Um, well, traveling on, abroad on March 30, 30 or 31st. Yes, if you want to read my notes. Um, on March 31st, 1913, <laughs> he, he died in his sleep in the Grand Hotel Plaza in Rome. So um when they it's so kind of sad to say when they shipped his body back to new york um when he arrived in new york wall street um was lined with flags flown at half staff so big uh yeah big tribute from all the big business guys so um and yeah just kind of going on like jp jr his son he inherited the banking business um he donated uh, his father's mansion, uh, that one in New York that had, uh, the first residence with electricity. He donated to the Morgan library museum. So it, you know, he donated it to himself kind of <laughs> oddly weird Keep enough. the name on this. Yes, exactly. Um, but, and then everything inside too. So like the book collections, the art and things like that, the mansion was worth, uh 68.3 million dollars um which is 1.39 billion today i guess yeah well, did you um, get like an, a street address on that oh there is um in the wikipedia it's it doesn't seem too but it's like for where it is it's like a property right like it's surrounded it has like grounds which is not a thing in new york city Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't look up like uh, Google Images or anything, but yeah. Okay, that's cool. It's though. got like gardens and trees and stuff, and like you know, like a it, block over the... is a massive apartment building. You know, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, to be in New York and actually have a normal ass house. Um, and then there was another weird stat which I oh. I don't really understand it. Um, they said the mansion was worth. Twenty five point two billion dollars based on share of GDP. Whoa. But like, that's kind of hard to. I feel like that's a floated number somewhere. I don't understand that one necessarily, but mm. probably just because what you said, Dan. You know where it is, what it is. Um, I think know, I have to New fact York. check myself here. Okay. I think I mistook it for Andrew Carnegie's mansion in New York City. Morgan's is kind of just in the middle of a regular city block, but Carnegie's has like a whole grounds to it. Mm. My Still, bad. Pretty crazy. But out of all of this, he is most notable for one thing and one thing alone. When you play Monopoly next time, I want you to look at the little game board. You'll see a man by the name of Rich Uncle Penny 
bags. <laughs> Insane that you still stumbled on that, dude. I, I, Unbelievable. I, 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 in my brain, I had money bags screaming Paul, at me the Paul entire had, time. Before uh, the episode, Paul had to do some vocal warm-ups to get that Punkle, name out. Uh, baggy yeah, Penny yeah. guy bags money. Uh, my Uncle Funyuns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, rich Uncle Penny bags. Okay. There you go. Um, the 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 character on that is a depiction of J.P. Morgan, or it's based off J.P. Morgan. Yeah. So, um, yes. So next time you play Monopoly, pour one out for old J.P. And on that bombshell, wow! I believe it's time. To, I believe it's time to wrap this episode up armchair underscore adventurer underscore podcast on instagram we do you guys know we've surpassed the two hour point yeah there's gonna be stuff cut though oh i'm sure but i'm just saying yeah we did it my raw audio is over two hours that's bonkers epic win uh something like that (laughs) (laughs) all right well we finally did it. I don't know what the hell we're going to do next. So just uh, stay tuned. Well, I got I got plenty of ideas. So Greg's got rest assured. Greg has plenty of ideas. Rest 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 assured. Greg does not know how to shut the fuck up. True. True. Yeah, Dan. Dan, what do you think of that one? <laughs> My day goes on